Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast, where we explore some of the latest and greatest in genetics and genomics, and actually today in proteomics. And in this episode, I'm really excited to speak with Cindy Lawley, who's the Senior Director of Population Health at Olink Proteomics and the co-host of the Proteomics in Proximity podcast. Cindy works with many of the world's major population genomics programs like the UK Biobank, to name one, to bring together proteomics, genomics, and deep phenotyping using the Olink platform. So I've mentioned Olink probably half a dozen times on the platform, including one of the most recent in our 2022 roundup with Dr. Vera, who I got a ton of great feedback about. He was an amazing guest. We're going to try to get him back on for the end of 2023. And I've been wanting to do this podcast with Cindy for a long time. We met about a year ago at the Illumina. I think it was the first annual. I don't know if it's every year that it's happening, but they had this event. Illumina Genomics Forum, I think they call it. IGF. Yeah. The yeah. IGF. And they yeah. had Obama. They had Bill Gates. I didn't get to meet either of them, but they were incredible speakers. But I did get to meet Cindy. Uh, and we bonded instantly because I love the juxtaposition. With know, Obama. They had Cindy, they had Obama, they had Bill Gates, and and yeah, we bonded over podcasting. But also, Cindy, as as you can probably already tell, is just a great person, super engaging. We got to talk about genomics, proteomics. So this is probably my most uh, rambling intro yet. But uh, Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much. Kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. I am a absolute fan. I'm really excited about this. I've been excited for a while. You have spent you spent 14 years at Illumina, focused on genomics before you moved into proteomics. Uh, you spent some time at Metabolon and then now at, at Olink. I really want to hear about what spurred that change uh, in a second. But first, I can't help but ask you, we're at Illumina for 14 years through probably one of the most exciting times in genomics where the cost of sequencing went down probably more than tenfold. You started to see some major breakthroughs. What was that like having a front seat to all that action at Illumina? It was amazing. It was amazing. And it's only in retrospect that you realize what an amazing time it was in history, right? And so, you know, when I look back, I think, you know, there were times when I knew that we, that we, I don't know, the world was making history. It wasn't, it wasn't Illumina necessarily. It was what people were doing with that technology. But uh, even, yeah, just looking back, I still, I, I treasure that the luck involved in me getting to have a seat there and the people and the, and the relationships that I, that I forged from that experience will be relationships that I'll have for a lifetime. I, I treasure that. And I, and I think about, you know, if, if someone else had interviewed me, I was straight out of my PhD. If someone else had interviewed me other than John Stoltnagel, would I have even considered going to an industry position? I really was not planning on taking that role when I interviewed for it. I, I really thought academia was my path, that teaching was my future. And so it was just a bit of a surprise coming out of talking to him that I was so compelled by the technology. And I'll, and I'll tell you, that interview, I maybe understood 30% of what he was explaining to me. He was, you know, I had to hear it maybe three times before I really got the scope of what was possible. This was pre-sequencing, right? This was array genotyping uh, when, I, when I joined. And so, you know, had no idea that, that Illumina was going to be the powerhouse it became back in 2007 when uh, Selexa uh, merged with Illumina. Yeah, that Selexa technology and the, and the people behind it are phenomenal. What did you do your PhD in? Was it something related? Yeah, so it was evolutionary biology. And I had done a, a master's first, an independent master's at another university in cladistics and evolutionary biology. And found that I really wanted to study something in my PhD that had a um, an applied that was had a had a reason. I I didn't want to. I wanted it to have a solution for something, you know. And and so I ended up using genetics as tools for measuring fish populations and understanding the fisheries. So ultimately, my PhD was under the umbrella of marine science. But it was funded through the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where I worked as a contractor and as a, as a student throughout my, my PhD work. In that field, fast forward to today at the Sanger Institute down the street from where I am, they're doing the Tree of Life project, sequencing every animal species they can basically get their hands on. It's pretty amazing what 20 years or so difference makes. 
Yeah. And the cover of science, Eleanor Carlson from the Broad Institute, who I'm, I'm, I don't know, I think pretty much everyone knows she'll have the cover. She just texted me the cover. It's going to be an amazing cover on science. And again, the, just an understanding of comparative genomics and, and what we're learning from it. It's the path not taken, you know, for me now, but I, it near and dear to my heart since I'm now so focused on the, on the human arena. Yeah. That, that's maybe a good time to transition to talking about your shift from genomics into proteomics. Although I think I, Olink is genomics in, in a way, and we're going to get into the technology, mm-hmm. but, um, or, or sequencing at least you, you shifted from Illumina to Metabolon and now Olink, what, what spurred that change? What made you decide after 14 years to try something different? Yeah, good question. So, so Illumina had grown from about 150 people when I joined in 2004. And again, it was just an ar- array technology company, right? Our biggest competitor was was Affymetrics. And, and I will say that the, that time in Illumina reminds me a lot of, of this proteomics space right now, because the targeted approach to looking at the proteome is, is really what's driving high throughput capabilities, you know, that these affinity methods that can, um, can do high numbers of samples are, are targeted. They're not measuring everything that's possible in the proteome. They're looking for, for known assays that are, that are developed and, and qualified mm. as specific. So that, that array genotyping, you know, that approach of trying to get it to as much information in the genome as you can, we're trying to do the same thing with the proteome, try to get as big of a, a breadth of, you know, cast a wide net, we say, yes. to fuel a discovery. And we can, we can talk about what, what I think is innovative about Olink and the reason that I came to Olink, but the transition out of Illumina was really because I had led the consortia program at Illumina. Once the sequencing technology was on board, we had the two sides of our business and sequencing was a logical way to drive discovery of SNPs in, in different populations and catalog those that variation and deploy it in an intentional way, you know, a tag SNP selection way on arrays and make access to the genotyping data cheaper and it's gotten cheaper and cheaper over time right and and still people sequence where they can afford it but the genotyping capabilities at illumina had continued and still continue to to improve in pricing and coverage right it's moving in two dimensions just like in the proteomics we we, we're trying to increase our coverage but drive down costs to make it more accessible so so that program really wasn't needed by about 2014. I stayed for another four years and moved into a market development role and really, really drove aspects of the business in South America, in, in Asia. And I, I loved that time. But the, the, the reorgs within Illumina gave me an opportunity to exit and take some time off. And I laughed at the time because I, I hadn't had a summer off since I was like, in junior high. <laughs> yeah. What, what did you do? What did you do with your time off? I got a puppy. I got nice. a golden retriever puppy. And I, yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. So I, I took some time off and then the transition into Metabolon, I will, I will say it was, it was a little scary taking time off because everybody was telling me, you know, if you're leaving a job, the best time to get a new job is when you've already got a job. And you know, <laughs> like it, it, maybe that's true, but eh, I just, I just thought this gives me some time to really explore different companies, what they're doing. The two things that were highest priority for me are culture and cool technology. And and I was looking for technologies that were a rising tide that lifted all boats because I had become really enamored with that, uh, uh, with the Illumina technology. Yeah. And so, so I took the time and I attended conferences. I, I attended AGBT. I did some contracting work. So, so someone paid to have me attend some conferences, which was really great for me too. And I just started making a list of companies and contacts I had in those companies and, you know, what I liked about them and what I thought about the culture. I joined Metabolon because the role was in population health. And this was akin to my days in the consortia program. And that was some of the funnest accelerating of discoveries that I'd ever experienced anywhere in my in my career. And so I was trying to kind of uh, find something that recreated that opportunity because I felt like I my personality is a bit deep into the science, but also very, very social. I don't know yeah. if that's the right word, but 
but someone who can bring collaboration and accelerate collaboration. And, uh, and so that population health role at Metabolon was attractive to me. And I really am all about the manager, right? So Alex Forrest Hay, fantastic leader, I think. And so I worked for him for what, a little, about a year and a half until he left Metabolon. I continued working at Metabolon until I saw, and, and we can talk about metabolomics, certainly they're the, the currency with which the microbiome pays us to house them. You know, that's how I think about metabolites is they measure our, you know, an understanding of what's going on in interactions with the microbiome. There's some interesting papers that have come out with proteomics, metabolomics, as well as genetic data. But, but so I saw the launch in 2020 of the NGS readout that Olink had, and I had some friends over at Olink. And so I reached out to Olink and said, this is so cool. And it really will solve a problem that we have been waiting to solve to get closer to the phenotype, but in a broad scale way, I'd really like to be part of it. And this is how I think my background might be beneficial. And, and I got in front of the right people that agreed. And we, we put together this, this structure to work with the population health space to, to help folks that are working in genomics or come from a genomics area might be trying to get at real-time biology using RNA sequencing, which is a great way to, to dig into that, that might have additional value by adding proteomics. So tell me about proteomics, because I actually know very little about proteomics, except for what I've learned from your podcast. I'd love if you could just paint the, paint the landscape. What, and, and I loved actually the metaphor of arrays compared to maybe whole genome sequencing, because I, I do know that there are different technologies that measure it in different ways, but I'd love if you could actually just give me a crash course in proteomics. Yeah, sure. So the, this is one of my favorite things. So I usually talk about the plasma proteome because that's sort of the liquid biopsy space. That's a, a, a low invasive sampling approach, we say, right? Taking a blood draw is a lot easier than going in and, and say a biopsying a tumor or uh, some other tissue if, if disease is present. So just in talking about the plasma proteome, mass spec methods are the gold standard, really. I think most most people would agree that in theory, mass spec captures everything that's there. Mass spec is a hard uh, technology to do thousands of samples through. It's it's possible, but it's it can can tie up the instruments for a long time or you need a lot of instruments. And frankly, mass spec does the best job, and I am not a mass spec expert, so please forgive me if Neither I, am I so. state this incorrectly. Well, I think some amazing discoveries like HDL and LDL are clinical labs we all have access to when we go to Quest or LabCorp to, to have our health monitored. Those discoveries are well-suited and driven by, by the kinds of things that mass spec does really well because they're high abundant. So meaning they're, they're high presence. There's a lot of them in our, in our blood. And so they come through on the mass spec instrument very clearly and, and they're quantitative and, um, and those, those correlations are really clear. What, what is more challenging to do on a mass spec instrument is to look at the low abundant proteome. So these cytokines and chemokines became really talked about in, in, in COVID those are not as easy to look at, especially in large numbers of samples. And so what I think the, the O-Link technology does really well is, is concentrates the library on these low abundant proteins. And then over time, we've expanded our library to, to also be complementary, you know, complementary and overlap to some extent with mass spec. So we, you know, and those, those, that protein list you can download from our website without even putting your email address in so that, you know, we're pretty, pretty open about what we've got on our assay and we welcome contributions or requests coming from researchers on what we should add. Okay. So that's, that's where I think Olink is special. The way the assay works is it, is it's two antibodies. So antibodies are familiar. We use antibodies in, in drugs, right? So antibodies hook these proteins out of solution. It's thinking of plasma, right? And they have conjugated to these antibodies, these single-stranded oligos that can then hybridize once both antibodies find the target protein. Once that hybridization happens, you're just converting it to a library prep, right? So once that hybridization happens, you can extend it, amplify it, and it will be a reflection, a counted reflection of the original protein levels in, in the original sample. Huh. It's a relative concentration. 
Uh, but the readout can be on a qPCR instrument, which was our original deployment of the technology that maxed it at uh, our target 96 panels. So we have you know, 92 unique proteins on each of those panels. And so people would run multiple panels to get as much discovery as they could. Now we've got the 3000, uh, the Explore 3072 product, which is deployed on an NGS sequencer. And so we can do more coverage. We can do 384 samples at a time for that, those proteins, so around 3,000 proteins uh, in one run of a NovaSeq today. And then, of course, the, the sequencing costs keep getting driven down by, by players, not, not just Illumina, but some of these other players on the market like Element and um, Ultima and uh, MGI and, and Singular, right? These are ones that we are quite open to 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 working with as well. We've had press releases around working with with three of those in, in from AGBT. Yeah, so so we're keen to see the cost of the sequencing component be driven down so that the cost per sample can be driven down. And then we're also trying to expand to cover more of the proteome because these discoveries are so ripe. We've got like 1200 and so April 15th Gary sent out our latest publications list. So 1224 peer-reviewed publications just since 2016. So that is pretty phenomenal and seeing that makes a big impact on me when I look and that's that's just the peer-reviewed stuff, right? We've got other stuff in BioArchive like the UK Biobank Pharma Proteomics project that preprints out uh came out last year and we're waiting for the peer-reviewed version. That was a long answer. I hope that was No, and it's great. It, it makes total sense and it, I guess it seems like you could compare it to an exome or an array or something like that in the sense that you're building you're building a big panel exactly and ever expanding and and you you don't see what you don't see what you don't see but you can do an incredibly high throughput dive into some of these low abundant proteins that would be very difficult to see from a lot of other methods yeah and, and you know Karsten Suri and and Yelkin Swank and, and Mark McCarthy have published uh, a paper to say, you know, the, what's the value of adding this intermediate phenotype, this, this protein level information when you've got genetic information and you've got clinical data or phenotypic data, you know, the power that you can have to amplify your ability to detect what's going on between the genetics and the, and the disease is, is much higher. So you're increasing power. They, Karsten says it's like a magnifying glass that allows you to do what you need to do in, in smaller sample sizes. So I think that's that's also exciting as well. I think, yeah, so yeah, I'll just yep. stop there. And and yeah, I'd love to talk more about the UKB Pharma Proteomics Project as well, just because what they're doing there, I think, is really innovative. And those data will be publicly available ultimately. Some of the, some of it already is. Yeah, what what uh, I'd, I'd be great to hear about that actually, because I think that's one of the best examples of layering. We know most listeners will know that UK Biobank has started with sample collection and phenotyping, layered on genotype arrays, then exomes, now whole genomes, a couple of different types of proteomics as well. And and uh, yeah. there've been a couple of papers that over the last year or so. It'd be great to hear more about that and what what that is, what you're looking for. Yeah, so so many of your listeners will know that that just to use the Exome Sequencing Consortium as a as an example, that that was a pre-competitive collaboration. That's a a term that we we throw around, meaning that it was partners from industry that came together and funded this this discovery data set that that they knew would be publicly available and is is now so that ability to drive forward something with funding from multiple partners it accelerates innovation right it accelerates the ability to have that sequencing data uh, in the community and and it's very exciting and so on the heels of that exome sequencing consortium it was proposed that a similar effort be organized around collecting proteomic data and doing a broad proteomic look at that time. So some of those ESC partners stuck around for that effort. Other new partners joined. And ultimately, we have 13 pharma partners that were part of that UK Biobank Pharma Proteomics Project, which is what, what we call it, UKB PPP. So that project 
made the choice about technology, chose Olink for for this particular effort that was originally around 55,000 samples. It's now expanded with a COVID project to over 60,000 samples. And they first committed to doing our, our first um, uh, product, which was the Explore 1536. So it's around 1,500 proteins. Those data, that first tranche of data, are now publicly available. I confirmed with Naomi that they're they're on the UKB research analysis pl- platform that's that's hosted by DNA Nexus. So those data should be publicly available. The second tranche of data, the additional expansion to to around three thousand proteins, will be coming out later on that platform. And so just this ability to have pharma come in and and fund it demonstrates, I think, that they've got some some combined interest, but also, of course, individual interest in the ability to to look broadly at proteomics. So the publication looked at, and this is a preprint publication uh, led by Ben Sun and Chris Whelan. Ben is at Biogen. Chris is now at, at Janssen. That preprint uh, identifies 10,248 associations, you know, correlations between genetic regions that are known from the UKB data with protein levels. So, so you know, sort of a dosage effect going on with the genotyping. You know, you 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 imagine that these are these are significant correlations. Eighty five percent they report are are novel. So I think this will provide a, a beautiful data set with which to start start assessing with co localization or Mendelian randomization these methods to um, to look at the clinical data and which of these might not be happening by chance alone to then distill it to a subset. So that there's a, a list of potentially causal relationships between genetics, proteins, and disease. That's the the magic, I think, of having those three data sets together in this place, uh, in the in this data, this research analysis platform. That ability to have a more systematic approach to to evaluating these potential therapeutic targets that's disease agnostic and and allows each pharma to to rank these potential targets. In terms of what what their priorities are, I think that that has some promise, and I think it's pretty well established that that when you have genetic data going into a clinical trial, just speaking the language of of, of the pharma here, that you have more than twice the likelihood of it being a successful clinical trial. Right? We don't know what proteins will provide for for clinical trials, but I would imagine it's going to add additional value. As well, and so I'm excited to see see how that pans out. It's it's early days, at the moment, but we've certainly seen some exciting publications around post clinical trial analyses that give mechanistic insight into what's happening with a therapy and allows pharma to have a biomarker or a set of biomarkers that are are helping with better diagnostics. So that helps them have a population that's appropriate for for prescribing that drug as the, the, these have to be moved to the clinic of course having a biomarker for diagnosis having biomarker for tracking disease progression and having a biomarker that helps with understanding response to treatment right that that's a that's a triple threat that that I think adds a lot of value to them so we've got some nice nice examples of that which it's always wonderful when pharma can publish on their results of course so much of what they do they need to do internally so I can give you some of those links to some of those publications for the show notes if if you think yeah that'd be great yeah it's 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 phenomenal i think integration of multi-omics yeah and i think what to go back to the very first paradigm you explained i think this is such an important one because if if i could play it back we we currently live in a world where we've got really strong links between genetics and all kinds of medic if we just restrict to the medical world genetics and medical phenotypes we know that lark 2 is strongly associated with Parkinson's. We know that ApoE4 is strongly associated with Alzheimer's. By layering in proteomics in between those two, then all of a sudden you get a lot of really interesting data and potential stories to chase down where you can look at the the genetic link to the to the phenotype via the lens of the protein and and look at okay the the change in ApoE4 we know and suspect that it changes the ApoE4 protein, but what else does it change? Um, yeah. And does that give you a, a different a different potential target to go after, or or to the point you raised, maybe there's another biomarker as well that's easier to measure or more sensitive or flips on earlier, or druggable, more druggable. 
Yeah. And I would even say, you know, these really highly penetrant or, or or strong associations, I should say, strong associations like the ones that you describe are not the ones I think we can add the most value to. I th- Although, you know, that's maybe because I don't, I, I work in the polygenic world quite often. I'm talking to people that are looking at diseases that are quite, um, that, that they're building polygenic risk scores that might have a hundred or a thousand different genes involved. And in fact, now when I'm at ASHG or I'm at a, a, a meeting where someone's talking about polygenic risk scores and they put up a gene list, I'll take a picture of it. I'll put it down next to me. I'll go into our Insight browser. I'll make a list of those genes and I'll see how many of those proteins, which are the products of those genes, uh, how many of those proteins we have in our panel to see you know, what might be the value that proteins might provide and understanding sort of the mechanism there. And, and this is aspirational, but but that polygenic aspect means that you need a polyprotein, a multi-analyte solution. And I think I think the, the technology having originated as a qPCR readout in a midplex size, you know, we have, um, you know, target 48, which has 45 proteins in it. We have a target 96 that has 92 unique proteins in it. We have redundancy for, for QC, et cetera. But the the ability to take the discovery and cast this broad net and then narrow it to a protein panel, uh, especially with these AI methods. Uh, of course, you can't have a podcast without saying artificial yes, intelligence. Not anymore. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know these approaches to have a sort of maybe even a nodal, the different nodes in the biological pathways that are involved and represent each biological pathway in your signature. But you can imagine, you know, these polyprotein signatures. It looks like twenty proteins in many cases can be very impactful, 20 proteins or less. In fact, there's a preprint out about, I think it's 12 different cancers that Matthias Ullen has looked at uh, and his team have looked at for characterizing uh, different cancers. So these sub subsets, and they they have it down to, you know, some in some cases, fewer than 15 proteins, right? So being able to have these specific assays that measure the protein we say we're measuring allows researchers to drill into the actual pathways and trust that they'll validate on the back end. And that's essential to be able to demonstrate clinical utility. Again, we're early days, right? But that path to an LDT, you know, we've got several customers that are on that path to an LDT for building signatures that 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 help with, you know, you know, Crohn's and colitis, you know, predicting which pediatric um, cases will uh, develop complications, which ones may have a time period where you can insert a pause before you take out a kid's colon, you know, having a, an, an ability to score the likelihood that you're right. going to have those complications. It's pretty valuable. Uh, these cancer risk, you know, we've got ovarian cancer, Crohn's and colitis, multiple sclerosis, you know, we've got a dozen different Alzheimer's neurodegenerative disease, right? Big, big area. These areas where where folks are are really focusing attention to build uh, these predictive tools. And then, uh, of course, aging is such an exciting arena, right? So lots of interest in trying to, to build predictors as to who will age with less cognitive decline than, than the rest of us. So we, we want to, yeah, wouldn't it be great for medical care to be predictive like that to, to help us um, monitor things in a more personalized way? That's, that's the dream, right? Yes. You just in the last 10 minutes, I think you've named six or six or seven amazing applications. I'm curious whether there's one over the last couple of years that has really captured your imagination. Is there an application of proteomics that um, has just made made you uh, see the potential in a unique way or or have an aha moment of some sort? Yeah. So I always lead with it. Right. So it's the it's the utility of this in the context of what I've in, what I've invested my career in, which is is genomics, right? How do we how do we empower the genomics with the proteomics? So you'll see that phrase in our in our messaging quite a bit because we we see that the genomic data sets are are powerful, and if we can add value to those, that's something we're excited to to see, and I think we're seeing that in many cases. So. That's, I think, definitely this ability for pharma to have a more systematic approach to to identifying their targets is is probably the most exciting area for me because I want I want us to have more successful clinical trials. I want us to have tools that will help us understand the mechanism by which a drug is acting. I mean, how many drugs are on the market that 
they're fewer today than there were 20 years ago, but but they get approved and they go through and we don't actually quite understand how how they worked. And I think we're starting to to reveal that. And I think also this liquid biopsy space is such a hot space. So it's cell-free DNA and the ability to to do early cancer detection is phenomenal, but it's um it's a burden to have false positives. It's a burden emotionally for someone getting that result, right? Yeah. And it's it's a burden to the healthcare system to be monitoring someone who is not actually having cancer. And so, you know, is there a way that we can add value there to improve the the accuracy of those tests? And I think I think from what I'm seeing, I think that that there absolutely is. So we'll see. But it's it's uh it's exciting. I'm having the time of my life. That's amazing. I have uh I was I was searching for proteins on your website in the background. I have this I have a particular protein that I'm really interested in right now that I was able able to find. I don't think I could say it on on air yet, uh, but I but I will uh I will be asking you about it afterwards. I will pull up any paper we have that has a hit on that protein. So we we actually have this is a great time for me to actually uh point out a free tool that we have uh launched in the last year called Insight, which is it's just insight.oleg.com. Very simple. Uh, you can make an account. You'll need a username and password because you'll want to save protein lists. And this is where I save protein lists and I share them with people that give talks about polygenic risk scores who might think I'm crazy to, to send them this list of proteins. But I like people thinking about the future. So, uh, so yeah, that interface is beautiful because you can actually browse pathways, but you also can put in a protein and see any publications in our database that that reference that protein. You can see which panels that protein's oh, cool. on, and you can, um, you know, mostly it's a list of proteins, right? So any any I looked up inflammaging, right? Inflammatory aging and cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, and for a for a client, and and came up with a list of proteins so that she could try and determine which which of our panels should she should she do a with her budget? Should she do a target panel, or can we get her onto an explore? more of a discovery tool. We have multiple panels in our Explorer, so it's it's modular. We have these 384 protein sub-panels within the 3072. So someone can choose to run, you know, inflammation markers and and just run a subset. So so that allows us the flexibility to help hone in on on what they might be interested in or where they think that their their signal might be. So that's that's also uh, useful. So I think that the tool can be uh, fun to browse, even if you're not, even if you're just trying to understand pathways. And and, yeah. and also, you asked earlier about proteins, and it's probably worth mentioning that you know you can have abundance, you know, sort of a um, sort of an average abundance of any given protein. But you imagine that when you plot that in picograms per mil or or you know femtograms per mil or whatever, there's going to be these little whiskers up and down. Uh, on that protein. And so unlike genetics, you you need to hone in on that dynamic range for that given protein. And this, I think, is the is the magic of 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 the assay and the way that our assay is set up is really important to keep in mind to test an assay against both diseased as well as healthy samples so that you can see in a case control study for like a biomarker study, you know, many people have done biomarker studies without genetics on our platform. And so comparing those cases and controls, you want to make sure that you're able to see the difference in those. So so capturing that dynamic range and the readout of, you know, whether it's on our qPCR instrument or NGS readout, that's an, an important aspect that that you don't have to you know there's some some comparisons you can make to RNA sequencing, but our our team doesn't like it when I compare RNA sequencing to proteins. They're 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 a little different, but which yeah. I understand. But that's that's where I come from. So I think about that. Right. Are, I, a question I should have asked maybe at the very start, but how many proteins are there? I assume there are at least 20,000 because there are at least 20,000 genes, but we've got different isoforms. How does all of that work? Yeah, so I've heard I've heard estimates around this that, you know, we can assume 20,000 proteins from 20,000 genes. Those are the, the full length proteins, right? So then you've got, you know, glycosylated proteins or, or phosphorylated proteins, you know, these sort of proteoforms that um that are ripe for an understanding of discovery and so i think an estimate that i've i've kind of taken on is is that there's probably around a hundred thousand total maybe of including the proteins as well as the various proteoforms but i don't i don't think we know i think this is 
this is an area for, you know, in the future when and if we're able to actually sequence the proteome and and see everything that's there and be able to do it in a high number of samples so that we can understand diversity across different populations and how they express proteins. And I think, you know, that's another area that I think we've we were pretty passionate about is is to have have the proteomic data in the world be representative of of underrepresented populations in the genetic space. And so if we can get ahead of that now and and see how we can enable an understanding of of proteins in in different ancestries, I think that's going to be really interesting. I mean, you can think about it as exposures over a lifetime, right? If if I've got a genetic variant that that someone else doesn't have that changes my protein levels, that protein level is going to be an exposure I'm going to have over a lifetime that 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 other person might not have. And and we absolutely know that that there are differences across ancestries, just like there are in genetics, right? Of course. Yes, I was interested in um, along the the theme of exposure around um, longitudinal sampling of of proteins. Has there have there been any interesting applications in any of the major biobanks or otherwise of taking yeah. measurements over time? Because it's not something that we need to worry about with genetics. But um, that's one of the downfalls of genetics. It is a it is a single a single static measurement your whole life, with the exception of somatic testing. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people would say methylation is one of the attempts to get at, to get at, you know, more real-time biology. RNA sequencing is an attempt to get at more real-time biology in the genetic space, right? Using piggybacking on the, uh, the cost reduction in that space. So there have been longitudinal studies that have done on this, have been done on the same individual over time. And it's surprisingly constant in, in one individual. So the that I think there's some changes that can happen at certain life transitions, you know, a, a woman having a baby, um, you know, uh, going into menopause would change proteins, you know, just speaking on my gender. So these, these things will shift some proteins quite dramatically for a period of time. But as I understand it, and again, this is, this is representing other people's research, but it's a, a bit surprising how over time, how consistent it is over time. I think I'll I'll also mention the opportunity for being able to see deviations from from a background of a control population is is also quite powerful. So there's a, a beautiful study that I talk about quite a bit that came out of Aravale cohort. That's the Institute for Systems Biology. So Aravale was was a, a a business that was trying to with it that did build a cohort of about 5000 people and monitored them over you know i think every 6 months they tried to get blood samples and they biobanked these plasma samples and have maintained them wow. even though Aravale closed its doors those same samples are still there and they're still generating discoveries and so over and they still maintain the institutional review board for this cohort they're still able to reach back out to these folks. So the consenting there is really quite beautiful as well. And it was originally a coaching program to help individuals with with their health. And over time, it's been just this ripe source of information because ISB is, they do microbiome, they do proteins, they do metabolites, right? They're rich systems biology analysis experts in in my view. And so they had these samples that over time, some subset of individuals developed cancer, different cancers. And, uh, and so they did a study and they got this into scientific reports with a pretty small sample size, but longitudinal sampling, where they had 10 individuals that had developed cancer, where they had at least three biobanked samples prior to diagnosis. So then they ran the proteomics on those, you know, retrospectively. And looked for signatures relative to, I think their their control population was 69 individuals. I think it was originally 70 individuals, but one of the individuals in the control population looked like they might have been out of, you know, they might also be needing a diagnosis. So, right. it was re- And they included that in the paper, which I found really interesting. They weren't wow. able to, to, to get that person to respond back, but they, they talk about it in the paper, which I think was really interesting. But but what was really exciting out of that paper was a tissue agnostic signature, a protein that that looked like it was indicative of metastases across different cancers. So I think the cancers were lung, breast, and what's the one that Steve Jobs had? Uh, pancreatic. 
Thank you. Pancreatic. Yep. Yep. So those across those three, so they say tissue agnostic, which just means across different cancers, right? But those were the three cancers out of the 10 that had shown metastases. And so, huh. so that idea that there was a marker that was a signature across cancers for metastasis was pretty fascinating. A preliminary study, so small number of samples needs to be validated, but that kind of thing is possible Amazing. with with these longitudinal cohorts, right? And the investment that's been made in in maintaining these samples and and limiting the what we call pre-analytical variation, trying to make sure that the samples were collected in as consistent a manner as possible and that how they're collected is tracked and all of those things go into into an analysis like this to make sure they're not confounding uh, results. And so it's, yeah, it's an exciting paper. I can provide the link to that as well. Yeah, that would be great. We've talked about the consortium projects that you've you've been a part of and helped lead over the years. These are it's it's really difficult to get any big group of people to do anything, but it's extremely difficult to get a big group of people that work for big companies to come together and do anything. But it strikes me that you have a little bit of a, a talent for this, or at least a, a passion for it, and it's not easy to do. How what what have those experiences been like, and what have you learned about trying to get large groups of large companies to gather towards a common mission that they all they all really want to be on, but sometimes the structures can just make it really difficult to to get everybody rowing in the same direction, to use a, a rowing metaphor. What, what have you learned about that? Yeah, so I certainly can't take credit for having gotten this UK Biobank Pharma Protea. I, I just want to make that really clear. Yeah. That was Chris Whelan, Lyndon Mitnall, and Melissa McCarthy. And or, sorry, Melissa Miller. Oh, Melissa McCarthy, isn't she an actress? Yes, Fairly. yes, a good yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, a really good, really funny one, yeah. Melissa Miller, so sorry. Yeah, Melissa is at, at Pfizer. Chris is now at Janssen, and and Lyndon is at Regeneron. So those three really spearheaded this. And what Chris says is that what was important there was to provide a really clear messaging uh, that everyone agreed on, who were science focused, and these are scientists within industry. So that's right. a really important aspect. Is that if we look at at pharma as a funding body, that doesn't, that's not really going to be a successful approach. These are very heavy hitting scientists that we're talking about who are driving these, this experimental design and proposing right. to the UK Biobank to use the samples. And so having, having really clear messaging that all the companies could then take internally with advocates and senior leadership to drive that discussion was really important. And, you know, not everyone could move forward in that partnership. Some people just couldn't couldn't get that in the timing that was needed to move it forward. And so, you know, that will happen. I still think it's it's amazing that there were 13 pharma partners that are that are in now. And I think there's potential, who knows what's next to to potentially have additional partners come in or or go out we'll see what chris is able to do or what what the other partners are able to to put together so that that i think was critical the aspects of you know having a really clear guideline around what's what's possible what's shareable what's not shareable and what the goals for success would be so that it can be pitched internally to each of these companies and then i think there's a certain element of a fear of missing out that probably comes in to each of these companies Although I, you know, I can't speak for how those conversations advance, but I would imagine, you know, not wanting to be left out and not have access to such a valuable, powerful data set. And I just mean, you know, the UK Biobank, Exome yes. Sequencing Consortium, the Proteomics data, right? These, not just this, this data set, but, but, you know, multiple different endeavors that, that were pre-competitive, I think must play somewhat of a part. And then I think the scientists having good communication with their legal teams so that their legal teams understand what's a risk and what's not a risk in terms of the science, you know, what's what's publishable, what's what what needs to be kept proprietary. Right. I think I think that's a that's got to be senior leadership legal as well as the the lead scientists from the joint steering committee for that UKB PPP. And then just back to my consortia days when I was at Illumina, you know, I I would say that that what helped a lot for me was really the recognition that SNPs were probably not going to be patentable. Yeah. And so Illumina's ability to see that there, there just wasn't likely to be, that this was something that would, that would help the, the participants as well as help Illumina. And that we were trying to, the way that Illumina manufactured it, its arrays, and mostly these were uh, consortia around 
getting access to sequencing data so that the group could build the best SNP list to to drive forward an array that was going to help in in whatever field. So, so maybe it was psychiatric disease. A lot of these were agriculture arrays. So in, in fact, the, the bovine, the dairy industry has been completely transformed in the way that they choose their their producers by by the tools that that came out of uh, one of those consortia. So that's that's one of my most proud participatory events at Illumina was was going to to receive USDA awards around around that as well as uh, building a pig and sheep chips. Those those agriculture scientists are are so scrappy and can do so much with right. Their budgets and and brilliant in in the informatics, right? Because nobody's making canned software tools to help them analyze their data. They all are doing it, and and it's and so you know a lot of my time in my last few years at Illumina was about evangelizing what what some customers were doing uh, with other customers and just making connections, which right. is just so much fun. It's a lot of fun. I was curious about the trajectory of proteomics as a whole. So you you were um, had a front row seat to an, just the most amazing Moore's law on steroids with genomics over fourteen years. M- many of us have seen the graph. If you haven't, then I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. But just Google. It was just in the Economist. It was just in the Economist last week. My mother actually saved it for me, and I was like, Yeah, I know that graph. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that graph in fifty <laughs> percent of all presentations over the last That's ten right. years. But the the drop in you mentioned earlier, drop in not just price but also throughput efficiency has been astronomical. Where are we at with proteomics? What what does like a typical what does a proteome cost today? I know we've talked about the throughput quite a bit. What did it cost five years ago? Where is it going? It'd be really interesting to learn a little bit about that trajectory. Yeah, great question. So we were just trying to to sketch this out for a graph that, you know, and, and I will say there was a point where I promised myself I was no longer going to show that NHGRI graph. It's too good. I, <laughs> it's too good. You have to show it. Um, I remember getting, you know, getting the bullets from Jay Flatley around you know, $3 billion, 13 years, but those were the numbers we use, the public funding, right? And then the the cost at the time he was quoting it was like $1,000 in a day, right? So just making that that comparison, it, it allowed me to talk about genetics with my family and help them understand right. why I was excited about it. And anyway, back to your question, where are we at with proteomics? So when I started at Olink, we were a service organization. So that's very much the way Illumina launched the array platform as well, that the array technology was a service business. And then as, you know, first we we built the big genome center array technology platform, right, that went out to the big five genome centers. And then we built the the um, beta ray reader that was more, you know, for, for more broad application, different kinds of, you know, not the broad, not the big big institutions, but the the smaller core labs could run that array technology. But in the early days, we were running projects internally, and it was around a thousand bucks a sample. I mean, these were expensive genotyping projects when they were they were doing custom SNP discovery, right? I would yeah. I would go to dbSNP, pull all the SNPs in this gene list that they had, submit it back to the customer. I was a project manager and uh, and help them pick their their SNPs for the manufacturing. We would make the manufacturing of that and that we would make them in big vats, right? So so the economy of scale was was really clear in the Illumina technology that if you could bring more people together, right. you could really bring down that cost because you could leverage this pool because to kick off a manufacturing event, you had to had to make a lot. Anyway, so so those projects were quite expensive. When I came to Olink service organization and so all of those service costs were rolled into it, and it was around a thousand bucks a sample for the broadest look that NGS. And at that time, I joined, as I mentioned, after the NGS launched. That first product was called the Explorer fifteen thirty six, and so that was about what we were charging there. As we've expanded the coverage of the proteome, we've tried not to have the pricing go too much higher, right? Because you want to be driving it down. And so, yeah, so, so the pricing today, I think, you know, essentially we're, 
able to get at the best pricing if someone's running it themselves. So our business model is really as as people have gotten more confident in the technology, they want to bring it in house. You know, Decode Genetics is a is a company that probably would or a group with an Amgen that probably wouldn't wouldn't be running Olink if they weren't able to have it their hands on it themselves. They they love that and they tweak it and they're so valuable. Their feedback is so magical to help us improve our products. But yeah, so our business model is now moving it out and we've got lots of these explore labs all over the world today. So that's the cheapest way to do it. And I gave pricing when I was at AGBT ballpark. You know, it's not the lowest pricing that's possible. It's not the highest pricing as possible, but it incorporates the sequencing component, which I think we estimate is around $63 at list price today on the NovaSeq 6000. So that that has to be factored in. But I think we can get around, you know, 300, 350 uh, pretty routinely, right? So but these are volumes, right? So we're yeah. very much like a raise. The more you order, the more you can. So I'm talking about driving down costs with big orders. And and then when groups are doing something like the UK Biobank, you know, we got to figure out, you know, what is their budget? What's possible? And, and try to do the best that we can to enable innovation because it's going to be seen by everyone in the world. And so that's sort of off of our off of our little tiered structure. So but I think yeah. it's a it's a reasonable number Coming to have in down mind. the cost curve dramatically, it sounds exactly, like exactly, yeah. exactly. So and then if someone is running it as a service, there's going to be some costs associated with their um, service FTE, right? They're, they're people that need to run the assay. So I don't want to set the expectation that if you're accessing it from one of our service providers, that that's going to be the price. I'm saying if you're running it yourself in your lab, you can get it down down to those prices. So I used to say a fraction of whole genome sequencing, but it's not if if we're getting whole genome sequencing down to $100 a sample, right? We're, we're moving in that direction, which is super exciting. And it'll drive down the cost of this too. Yeah. yeah. And nobody's nobody's giving a hundred dollar whole genome anyways. I, I'm very confident that it's coming. But like you said, you've got service on top of that. And and yeah. the the meta any of the medical people will be very quick to tell you that the analysis uh, and the genetic counseling time and the doctor time costs very well, much should, on top of that. Well, and we gotta we gotta we gotta say then that this is research use only, right? So our we are not a clinical company, we're not providing clinical services. However, we do have customers that have made the discoveries that they're now working with us to deploy on these midplex. I think Octave Bioscience is a pretty well known one because they've done these webinars on all of the steps that it takes to to validate and to we can do an exact quant tool that they can then um, demonstrate clinical utility and have an LDT for. But that's theirs, right? That's us in the background supporting it. But I don't want to set the expectation that we've that we're building clinical tools today. But I certainly see this as a path for translating what we've learned in the research field and our customers. What I love is having our customers take this take this on and carry it to the clinic. And I, like I said, early days, but but that's my aspiration. That's my hope. You you mentioned an LDT there, just for people who are new to that. It's a laboratory developed test, right? Is what you mean? It's basically that's a, right, exactly. Yeah, a, a baby, a baby in vitro. Instead of a fully FDA it's, approved in vitro diagnostic, there's you, if you're running this in one lab, you've got really strong analytical validity. You can um, you can run it as what's called a laboratory developed test, right? Have I have I got that? Yeah, that's right. And it's and it's tied to that lab. It's very specific to a lab, which is hence the name, right? So, and again, I will say I'm not an expert. I think you're probably learning. I'm not an expert, but I I touch on a lot of different things and I'm fascinated by, by them. So yeah, I'm not a clinical specialist, but I think you, you undersell, uh, I think you undersell your kind to your kind. To close out here, I I was wondering if I want to learn more about proteomics, I've learned, I feel like I've gotten a a baby master's degree in this last hour talking to you. And I listened to your podcast, which I highly recommend everyone. I'm going to pronounce it without fumbling my words, proteomics in proximity podcast. I like the alliteration. Yeah. What what else would you recommend? If it, Are there conferences? Are there other podcasts? Are there people that I should follow on Twitter? What do you recommend? Yeah, great question. I think that what we what we try to do with the podcast is make it digestible. And we we have a couple of different formats for those. Sometimes it's 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 and I'm not the only one who hosts it. So Dale Yuzuki, Sarantis, Clemidis, and me, we are uh, three co-hosts on that 
podcast. And so we'll either just be on talking about a paper that a, a, a publication that a customer is, has put out where we just, for whatever reason, wanted to talk about it before we get them on as an interview. We also do interviews. We don't, you know, you're a pro at this. And so I will also say Patrick has been phenomenal at helping us structure our thinking about how to how to keep those interviews um, spontaneous, but also have enough structure that a guest comes in feeling comfortable on what the topics will be so that they're not, you know, going to go off the reservation. So, so thank you for that. And so those are, those are the two primary formats. And then sometimes we'll uh, do a live event. So like at ASHG, for example, or Hoopo or something like that, or we'll, we'll try to get a few different customers on to, to say something. Yeah. So I think we'd love feedback on whether that is digestible, uh, whether it, it makes sense or whether we're, we're trying not to talk in, in acronyms or anything like that. So I think that's a great place. I think the Insight app is a great place. I think keeping a lookout for the UK Biobank paper that will come out soon, that will be, I'm sure, posted all over Twitter. You're welcome to follow me. I'm Taylor Lolly on Twitter. And then we're going to have a webinar that people might be interested in. By the time this this podcast comes out, it may be it's probably going to be a recording, but it'll be on the DNA Nexus website. So we're working with DNA Nexus, Chris Whelan from, again, Janssen, Ben Sun from Biogen, and uh, Naomi from, from the UK Biobank are, are all coming on to, oh, and Karsten Suri from, from Wild Cornell in Qatar. Who you've had on your about, podcast before. Yes, yes. Yeah. He's yeah. such a lovely man. So the, um, yeah, we're just basically talking about the data set that is now in the UK Biobank research analysis platform, kind of what the data looked like, how people are using it, how how it's been prepared, how the experimental design was put together. And that will be on Wednesday, April 19th, uh, will be the date for the for the actual broadcast. But again, it'll be a posted um, recording on the DNA Nexus website. So I think I think those those are good resources. And then you know feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or via email. I'm happy to happy to talk to anyone about proteomics. It's very fun. And there's a there's a thousand two hundred and something publications, so people can get to reading right if they if they visit your website. <laughs> Put it in Chat GPT. Yeah, and I'm happy to filter it on a disease area if people are interested in that. And you know, a lot of those publications are are around the qPCR readout. So we're we're now seeing this momentum coming out because it was in 2020 that the NGS readout came out. That product came out, and so we're now seeing so many of these explore publications uh, come through peer review. And so that's that's really exciting as well. So. I think some of the publications from the early days, you know, Olink was officially a um, a company in, in its current format in t- 2016, so that many of those publications, they if they were trying to cast a broad net, might have had access to 1,100 proteins or 1,200 proteins in our library at that point. Now we've got around 3,000, so those those same studies can be you know recapitulated using a broader discovery approach if needed, and if not needed, if they've got what they need, you know, it's it's so it's yeah it's exciting to see to see folks be able to to justify a discovery and an, and an ability to move some of these things to the clinic. I, I, I'll always say this quote from Eric Topol. He has said that it takes around 20 years to get something from a discovery to the clinic. And he quotes the, the, that the stethoscope took 17 years to, to get into the clinic. I, I love that uh, because it tells me, you know what? If there's any way to accelerate that, let's see what it's like in, in translating some of these protein signatures in layering onto what we're already learning about genomics. Will that help change that? I don't know, but I like that as a, as a benchmark to, to yes. try and hit and exceed. So we'll see. Right. Bend the curve down to 15 or, or 10. If yeah. Can. Yeah. Yeah. Our lifetimes are, are yeah. short. We need to, we need to get 20 these years, things. a long time people. Let's, let's get moving. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a career. So anyway, thanks so much, Patrick. Such a pleasure to be on. I, I'm still starstruck. So there's no need to be starstruck. The best advice I think that I got about podcasting was just rule number one is make sure you have great guests and then the rest takes care of itself. So thank you. I really appreciate all your time with this. And and I look forward to maybe we can do this in a year or a year and a half and we can update when you're at 2000 publications and 
5,000 proteins, you can catch me up again on what the latest and greatest is. Maybe a few customers will have LDTs at that time. That would be that would be very, very exciting. Yeah, I look forward to it anytime. Well, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, if you like the episode, the best thing you can do, my favorite thing you can do is just share it with a friend, somebody that you think would like it. And uh, if you're feeling if you're feeling extra supportive, then go on to your favorite podcast player and and hit that five star button. It helps other people find us, pushes us up the list. And as always, any feedback is really very much appreciated. You can find me on Twitter or email us at podcast at Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time.